You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. We come now to our sermon text from Luke's Gospel, chapter 6. Uh, it's printed in your service sheets. It's the first uh, 16 verses. Uh, and as we've been looking at Luke, especially uh, chapters 5 and 6, uh, they seem to uh, be carefully organized. Uh, indeed, all of the, the Gospel of Luke, I think, is, is very organized. Uh, but what we see in chapters 5 and 6, we, we see the way in which Luke seems to move from showing forth Jesus' authority in the first half of chapter 5, and we'll also see in the first half of chapter 6, again, Jesus' authority. And then he moves to Jesus' teaching in the latter half of chapter 5, and Jesus' teaching once again in the latter half of chapter 6. Actually, the, the latter half of chapter 6 will be the same portion or similar portion to Matthew's uh, Sermon on the Mount. And so this giant block of teaching that now comes after we continue to establish Jesus' authority. And so now uh, we come to the first uh, 16 verses here of Luke chapter 6. So hear these words from Holy Scripture. On the Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. Then he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to him, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, <clears throat> to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so. And he stretched, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, who he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor." So as you can see from these three, uh, from th these three blocks of text, in it we see a demonstration of Jesus's authority. The first one we see in verses one through five, Jesus himself declares himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of the Sabbath. In verses six through 11, we see Jesus as the Lord of life. 
And in 12 through 16, we see Jesus as the, the Lord of, of Israel. And so we have the Lord of the Sabbath in verses 1 through 5. And we have the way that Luke sets this up. Uh, we have this, this incident followed by an indictment to which Jesus gives an illustration following with this wonderful illumination. I actually managed to get three out of four of those, and it was Larry Wilkes who handed me uh, illumination on our ride up to Presbyterian. So I thank him for helping me complete all five of this alliteration. But incident, indictment, illustration, and illumination. So the incident that happens here in Luke chapter 6 is Jesus and his disciples, they're walking through a grain field and they're pulling the grain out and then rubbing it between their hands and then eating it. So that's just, simply, that's just what's happening. The bigger question becomes, as we'll see, is that is this lawful to do? Is this lawful to do? And we, we have to backtrack just a little bit before we get to the indictment to just be reminded of the ways in which the t Ten Commandments were given, that all Ten Commandments, violations of them, came with the threat and punishment of death. All Ten Commandments, you could be killed for violating them. And actually, the violation of the Sabbath is the one we do actually have an incident recorded of a man who violated the Sabbath, and the community took him outside and stoned him to death for that violation. And that's because uh, the Sabbath was not just a day of rest for the people of Israel, but it was a sign to them. It was a physical pointer that, that moved past it to a, a spiritual reality. So that actually breaking the Sabbath was equivalent to breaking the covenant. So that's why, in some sense, you can almost empathize with the Pharisees who, yes, they, they go to extremes in order to protect the Sabbath, but it's because they, they see in the Sabbath that it is, a, it is a good thing. It is to be upheld because of what it, it points to, this greater relationship that exists between God and his people. And so on the Sabbath, the, God gives them uh, actions that are forbidden. He forbids them to work, and, and in Exodus 35, he forbids them from lighting fires. I'm not going to go into an in-depth uh, analysis of what exactly work and lighting fires are, but I think simply there, there seems to be throughout this sort of common sense Sabbath approach, which Jesus is going to talk about, which seems to just be uh, taking a rest from labors outside the home and taking a... Uh, uh, Sorry, my train of thought just left me there. Uh, but dealing with uh, work inside the home, that these types of work uh, was to be uh, planned for in advance in order that the people could actually rest. And as we'll talk about later, a big part of this, I think, is God's goodness because humans, as I've seen, are stupid. That we're not the brightest bunch. We need God to tell us to rest, otherwise we probably would work seven days and kill ourselves. So that's the incident here that we'll examine. Is what Jesus is doing lawful or unlawful? And so that's the indictment the Pharisees bring. The Pharisees say, what are you doing? Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And so, again, we, we have to hear what is being said. They are indicting him to say that he is actually breaking the law of God. That's the indictment. It, it sounds silly that we're having this theological debate taking place over the plucking of grain and eating it on the Sabbath. 
And so now we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus breaking the Sabbath? In other words, did Jesus sin? Hopefully, everyone's going, well, the answer has to be no. <laughs> Jesus didn't sin. And if, Jesus did, if you believe Jesus did sin, please see me after church. But right, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, for our sake, he, Jesus, oh, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, right? Our, our, our redemption is predicated on the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life, that we who did not, he lived a perfect life, and that we gain his righteousness to stand before God. And so we, we really have to start our, our analysis of this passage by assuming that Jesus didn't sin. And that has to really be our first priority, is that Jesus didn't sin here, which means then we have to assume, however this works, Jesus didn't violate the Sabbath law. And actually, if you were to go back and, and look through and exhaust the Old Testament Sabbath regulations, there's nothing in it that prevents you from eating food on the Sabbath. And I think this is really an important point, that the Sabbath was to be a delight and a joy. It actually was not to be a time of fasting and repentance. It was a time of great joy that you're no longer having to work. You're not taking some time to rest, but also you're not committing to fasting. So that does mean that there is some type of food preparation that has to go on. And, and secondly, I think you have to remember this isn't Jesus's field that he's walking through. This is an Old Testament practice of, of gleaning. You were not supposed to, to harvest your entirety of your field, but to leave it for those who are traveling, those who are poor, to wander through it in order to find uh, sustenance from it. So Jesus is not working this field. There's just no way you can get to the idea that Jesus is, is, is having his disciples go through in a systematic fashion to harvest this field and harvest and prepare this wheat. They're simply plucking heads of grain and eating it. And so what we're, what we're having here is, is, again, a theological debate on who can correctly interpret the Sabbath. Who gets a say on what is and is not a violation of the Sabbath? And so that's what becomes at stake here. And we'll see later. And if you were to, to look later at later uh, Jewish thought on the Sabbath, there becomes this huge amount, this huge volume of work about what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. And so who gets to determine what the Sabbath and what violations to the Sabbath are? So Jesus then gives us this illustration in verses 3 through 4. And what I think is interesting here. And what has made my job much harder trying to preach this sermon today is that Jesus simply could have said, it is lawful to eat food on the Sabbath. Jesus could have answered that way. And it would have made my sermon preparation a lot easier. But as one commentator said, Jesus over-answers this. Instead of just simply saying, it is lawful, what I'm doing is lawful, Jesus then goes on to give this illustration of David, which complicates this matter, at least in my eyes, uh, greatly. Because now he, he goes back and brings up this illustration of David. There's this incident in David's life where he's fleeing from Saul. He and the men who are with him are, are famished and hungry. And in, this is in 1 Samuel 21, uh, verses 1 through 6. David goes to the priest and asks for bread. He asks for bread. Well, the priest says, there's actually no bread, no common bread. We just don't have any bread made for you. Actually, the only bread is we have the 12 loaves of the bread 
of the presence. This was bread that was baked and made and set before the Lord. Uh, that was then to be enjoyed by the priests only as a, as a sign of a, this fellowship meal, and that it was only lawful for priests to eat. Jesus even brings this out, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. So now we have an interesting quandary. It's an interesting passage here. Because the question is, is it unlawful to eat the bread of the presence? This is Jesus' illustration he's using. Jesus himself says, yes, this is wrong. It is unlawful for you to eat of the bread of the presence. And now we would have an illustration. If we, if we were to read it in that fashion, we'd have an illustration that seems to contradict Jesus' very point. Jesus' point is that I, I am lawfully interpreting this, and I'm lawfully doing this. And then he brings up this illustration that at its face value looks as if David is doing something unlawful. This is why it has taken me a long time to prepare the sermon. So the question is, the question is not actually, is it lawful for those who are not priests to eat of the bread of the presence? Because Joe Israelite cannot walk into the temple on the Sabbath on a day he's hungry and grab the bread of the presence and try to eat it. He would be killed further, much earlier in that process. So it is unlawful for them to eat. Either God would strike them down or a Levite guard would. The question, rather, that Jesus is posing, is it unlawful for David to eat it? Because one option we could see in this verse is that Jesus is saying, well, mercy triumphs over the law. That could be what he's saying. Many commentators take this approach. But to me, that, that short-circuits the situation because it says David sinned, which then by implication would be, well, then Jesus sinned. And I don't think that that can be the explanation of the text. But however, if we go back and we remember who David is, that David occupies this incredibly special place in the Old Testament. Really, David doesn't seem to even have an equal Right? He's the Lord's anointed. He's the Messiah. That means the, the same thing. But David, who is not only a king, he's not only, obviously, the line of Judah, uh, but he also functions as a prophet. Right? Many of the Psalms are written by David. Many of them have prophetic elements to it. So David functions as a king and as a prophet. But interestingly enough, David also appears to function, in some sense, as a priest, uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, David is, is wearing a linen ephod, the sign of the priests, as they're moving the ark into Jerusalem. David then will also offer sacrifices. Secondly, David's the one who composes Psalm 110. This magnificent psalm that speaks of the Lord speaking to his Lord, that he will sit at his right hand forever as the proper uh, Davidic king, but also that this king would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And again, we've, we've actually covered the episode of Melchizedek. We don't have time here to look at Hebrews chapter 7. But obviously, Jesus is pictured in the New Testament as a prophet, priest, and king, as the son of David. But David is also pictured as a prophet, a priest, and a king. And actually, if we were to go back to that episode where David is coming to ask for this bread of the presence in 1 Samuel 21, the priest actually asks him, have your men uh, defiled themselves or have they been with women recently? And David says, no, they are ceremonially holy. They're ceremonially clean. And David actually replies that once we actually eat that bread, how much more holy will we be? 
to me, that, that's fascinating because if David was sinning, David wouldn't be holy by eating this bread or more holy by eating this bread. And so David here eats of this, and he and his men are actually made holy by this endeavor. So that we come back to this point, is it lawful for David as the Messiah to do what he did? And I think Jesus' answer has to be, and the point of this text has to be, that it is, and that it was. David did not break the law. David did not uh, circumvent the law. David did not lay aside the law. But it was because of who David was as his special status, as prefiguring the Messiah, that, that he had the right to do this. Because ultimately, that's Jesus' argument and we see that in the way that he culminates this section. Illumination in verse 5. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, you probably are thinking about all the other things that Jesus said from the other Gospels, right? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But Luke here, Luke here doesn't include that. And that's another interesting thing about the way in which Luke has organized this. Luke doesn't include that. So that in this argument that Jesus is having, he doesn't speak about the purpose of the Sabbath. He simply speaks about who he is with this statement that I'm surprised there's nothing else recorded here about when he says this to the Pharisees, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Basically, Jesus is saying, very, he's saying quite a lot of things, but he is saying when the question of who has authority to legitimately determine what is and is not a Sabbath violation, I'm it. <laughs> I have that authority. I can tell you that what I am doing is perfectly lawful on the Sabbath. That's the, the base, I guess you could say, that he's saying. But obviously he's saying much more. Because not only is he saying, I have authority, but I have authority over the Sabbath. Which then starts to make some interesting uh, uh, theological issues for the Pharisees. How can this man who was born at this time be someone who has uh, lordship over this episode of creation? Right, Jesus here is basically saying that I am the messianic son of man. I'm the, the word that was at creation. I am God incarnate. And as the law was given by God and the law was interpreted by God, Jesus, who is God, can rightly interpret that. Which then I think is exactly why Luke then has this second episode here dealing with a Sabbath conflict. We see Jesus as the Lord of life in verses 6 through 11. There's a, another conflict. Luke starts, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue. Jesus had been doing this already, entering synagogues and performing miracles. In chapter 4, he heals the man of the unclean spirit. In chapter 5, he heals the paralytic man. Both of these, uh, likely were to assume, took place on the Sabbath. And Jesus has done this several times. And I can't prove this, but I wonder if the, the subtext behind this is the Pharisees found a person who was crippled and brought him there to the synagogue that Jesus was coming to in order to basically say, well, all right, let's see what happens now. But you, you have this situation. And for the Pharisees, what, what they would do in terms of understanding the Sabbath, and you'll see this in later uh, Jewish writings, is that if your life was in mortal danger well, then you could help. So if, if, your life, if someone's life is in mortal danger, well, then they would say that's an exception, a, a legitimate exception to help on the Sabbath. And we see this actually later on in Luke 13, uh, verse 14, that the rulers of the synagogue were indignant 
because Jesus had healed people on the Sabbath. And he said to them, I mean, the, the cold and callousness of this, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. Right, they're basically saying, look, none of the things that you are suffering from are, are in any way um, mortal dangers. You will be fine. There are six other days you can do this on. And Jesus answered, you hypocrites. Do not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Right, Jesus is saying, right, he's answering this. Is he truly the Lord of the Sabbath? Right, they're, they're sitting here. These men are, are sitting here ready to accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath while there's this man suffering from this ailment, this, this withered hand. This is a, a son of Israel, and it's his right hand, so his dominant hand is withered and unusable. Likely that means that there are as limited work that he could be doing. And the Pharisees are, are hell-bent on upholding this very narrow interpretation and, and many additional rules to the Sabbath. And I think what we have to see here is this is not an, uh, an instance of mercy triumphing over theology, right? Because Jesus has already addressed this when he heals the paralytic, speaking of his sins being forgiven, right? What Jesus is doing, he's correcting bad theology, He's correcting bad theology that leads to bad practices. The, the Pharisees and the scribes have, have built this whole edifice around God's gracious law, and they've turned it into something uh, that is, is almost unknown from God's original intent. And so this debate that's happening is about proper understanding of God and his laws. The, the scribes and the Pharisees actually have a deficient view. And so we see this, this Sabbath misunderstanding in, in verses 8 through 9. It says here that Jesus knew uh, their thoughts. And I come to this thinking that, yes, Jesus certainly could have known their thoughts supernaturally. Right? He's, he's, he's Jesus. But I have to wonder if he knew their thoughts because what he has here is he's got a man in need of help. He's got Pharisees and scribes with very angry faces. I, I think in that instance, I think Jesus could go, I don't actually need to be sovereign I can easily read this room. Jesus knows what's going to happen, even without being sovereign Lord of the universe. And so Jesus asks this question. And again, we come back to that what Jesus is demonstrating here is not mercy triumphing over the law, but rather Jesus says, he says, is it lawful? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life, or destroy it. Note, again, that, that important word that is found throughout here. Is it lawful to do what Jesus is doing? Is he the Lord of the Sabbath? And so Jesus is saying he's correctly interpreting the Sabbath regulations, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew puts it this way, Matthew 23, verse 15. Jesus says to the scribes, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. All right, because what Jesus is, is, is the subtext here is, is that what does the Sabbath ultimately point to? What was the purpose of the Sabbath? 
the Sabbath rest. Hebrews says, actually, the Sabbath rest still remains for the people of God, that there's this greater rest that is yet to come, that Abraham, who never experienced the promised land, was ultimately looking past the promised land to a builder, to a city. And so the Sabbath finds its ultimate culmination in the new heavens and the new earth, this time of, of rest, of renewal, a time in which it, it looks like the Garden of Eden, but it's so much better and so much greater even than that. And what Jesus is saying here is that healing and restoration are a picture of that. That, that bringing someone to wholeness on the Sabbath, in some sense, is what the Sabbath pictures. And so Jesus is saying that it is absolutely lawful for me to do this. And in fact, the Sabbath at, at its core speaks of, of restoration, of wholeness. I mean, think about the ways in which the, the word rest and Sabbath are, are used, the ways in which Israel in the wilderness longs for rest. They long for the promised land. They long for this, this new, wonderful place to dwell in and to rest in. And the writer of Hebrews saying, yeah, that rest was still incomplete versus the final rest that is coming. In so verses 10 through 11, we have what should be uh, Sabbath joy. Jesus commands the man to come to the center and tells him to stretch out his hand. So his hand is, is, is apparently uh, withered, and, and he stretches it out, and it becomes like new. Indeed, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And the Pharisees' response, again, this son of, a son of Abraham, this Israelite who is suffering, and now healed. They are filled with fury. And Jesus and Luke have been demonstrating that the proper response to this, chapter 5, and indeed throughout Luke, is that the, the, the response is to be joy. The response is to be joy. I mean, think of, again, the way Jesus speaks about this in the parable of the prodigal son. The response is joy, except for the older brother. The older brother is just miffed and annoyed. And here the, the Pharisees are annoyed. And they look for ways to find ways for Jesus to be done away with. Well, the last episode we have here, uh, just briefly we'll touch on this, is Jesus as the, the Lord of Israel. So Jesus goes up on a mountain to pray, which I think is significant. He, he goes up on a mountain to pray. There's this intense time of prayer where Jesus is with the Father. And what is he praying for? He's praying for the unfolding plan of redemption. The whole situation seems to echo of Moses on Sinai and the giving of the Ten Commandments, where God formally constitutes Israel as a nation. And Jesus is praying with the Father about the choice of these 12 men who would be apostles. I think Luke here highlighting the fact that God is ordaining all of this. And so he calls 12 men in verses 13 through 16. Many of these names will be very familiar to us. But that's that, that, that question there, Luke is not highlighting any of, of these men as if they're intrinsically worthy to be called. Right? We, we don't get their CV. We don't get told about them. We don't get really anything about them. Luke is highlighting for us one thing primarily, and that's the number. He's highlighting for us the fact that Jesus calls 12. And if I were calling a group of people, there's some of you who probably would be a little bit annoyed at calling 12. Why not 10 or maybe 7? I'm sure there's someone here who's going, 12 is just a very strange number. 
Why would you do that? Why would you call 12? I'd rather have 10 because then I can, whatever. But why does G Jesus call 12? I mean, obviously 12 has this great significance, right? Jacob had 12 sons. And from those 12 sons came 12 tribes. Later, actually, Jesus speaks of the apostles as those who would judge the 12 tribes in verses, chapter 22, verses 30. Right, Jesus as the Messiah, has the right to really establish and set up this new leadership, this new leadership for Israel. Jesus, as the, the Jewish Messiah who has come to his people now, uh, supersedes the, the priests, the fact that there is actually no current king legitimately, and no prophets. Jesus is the one who is embodying all of that, and he is the one who has the authority to set up this new group of men, these apostles, these messengers who would then go from Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria to the ends of the earth, preaching and proclaiming this message of what they would had seen. And so as we, we come to kind of wrap all of this up, yes, there are three sermons I probably just tried to preach here. But right, they, they all come together, driving us back to that question Jesus would ask later of Simon Peter, who do you say that I am? Indeed, Luke wants that question, I think, throughout. Right? This is a, a biography of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? Well, here we, we see Jesus is the, the rightful Messiah and all that entails. Jesus is the one who rightfully rules. Jesus is the one who has greater authority than the priests, than the prophets, and the religious leaders of the Old Test, uh, of Israel. Jesus is the one who can authoritatively interpret the Old Testament, and then it's binding. And also, he is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament promise types and shadows. We see this at the end when we look at the road to Emmaus, how Jesus says, all of this is culminating in me. So that's who Jesus is, is that's, that's what Jesus is depicted as in Luke's gospel. And so we come back, who do you say Jesus is? Right, as we saw in our, our video on Hope Explored, as we see here in Luke, that Jesus is not a good teacher solely. Jesus is not a good person solely. Obviously, he is a good teacher, and obviously, he is a good person. But clearly, Jesus is so much more than that. Nobody can make those statements and perform those things who is just solely a mere man. Jesus is the divine son of man. He is the perfect son of God. And the beauty of Luke's gospel is we have plenty more to go. There's much more to the life of Jesus as Luke will constantly come and bring us back to who do you say Jesus is? But I think, in, and where we'll end this morning, who do you say Jesus is? And is he Lord of your life? Is he Lord of your life? Because ultimately, that's the question that matters. Not who he is, but who is he to you? And is he your Lord? Is he your priest, your king, your Messiah? Who is he to you? That's the question that eternal life hangs on. Let us pray.
You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres.co.uk. For more, thank you.